You know, it's funny, when we read books like Daniel, it's easy to read it as a history book and not necessarily notice how it applies to us. And there's a number of things that I think as we go through, we'll understand exactly how it applies to us, pulled from the text. So, but I have to sneeze first, I think. Maybe. No? Okay. So, recapping the overall interpretation of the statue's meaning in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, here's what we come up with, and this is from Warren Wearsby. He noted four implications of the vision that Daniel was given. God is in control of history, period. No one can snatch that out of his hand and say, you know what, I'm overruling you, God. I'm, I'm going to do it this way. No one can. It's absolutely impossible. In order for that to happen, they would have to be greater than God, and of course no one is. Human enterprises decline as time goes by. Every empire in past history, unfortunately, even through to today, if you want to look at the United States, every previous empire declines. It simply does. Things change. Rome was probably the longest one, and I think we established that in some way Rome still exists through the Vatican and the Pontiff today. They really do. And I don't know if you noticed this in the news lately, um, but there's a Jewish rabbi in Rome who was apparently speaking with someone high up in the Vatican church, the Vatican itself, city. And they basically said, we have all the vessels from the temple that was destroyed in AD 70. And we just want to give them back to you. Now, if that's true, that's pretty amazing. So we're talking about the fact that when Rome sacked and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, those Roman soldiers basically took everything out of the Jewish temple. They, they took, they even melted the gold down in the rock and the brick surrounding the temple, but apparently, if this, what this person is saying is true, they still have all the vessels from the actual Jewish temple in AD 70. So it, it's kind of interesting the way that happens. And as I said, Rome is really the longest running empire. And even though the Roman Empire doesn't really exist, it continues. It has a through line in the Vatican and the Pontiff. And it probably will rise again as part of the final new world order that even uh, Joe Biden is now starting to talk more about. And it, the third thing Warren Grisby said is it's going to be difficult for things to hold together at the end of the age. And we know that that's true. Paul tells us um, there will be terrible times in the last days. And then he goes right through it. Men will be lovers of money, boastful, proud, arrogant, you know, and then blasphemers. We're seeing that. We are seeing that. I mean, you have to be blind to not see that. And then finally, Jesus Christ will return destroy his enemies, and establish his kingdom. So he is allowing human governments to exist only for so long. When that time is up, that's when he comes. And I think it's a fascinating thing when Jesus says, uh, no man knows the hour. I don't even know the hour. Yeah. In his humanness, he didn't even know the hour. 
And he said, the Father will tell me when it's my time. Which is fascinating because if you know anything about the Jewish wedding, that's exactly what the Father's job was with the bridegroom. The Father would say one day to the bridegroom, okay, today's the day. Go get your bride. Because he, he, the bridegroom had spent all this time building this house or adding an addition to his father's house, but he never knew when the father was going to say, now it's time. And it, so that's what Jesus is really saying. And of course, his Jewish listeners would have understood that instantly, being steeped in, in tradition and Jewish law. And everything. Now, I want to make a note there. Make a note. <laughs> uh, well, any time you build a house, probably everybody in here has been involved in the construction something. You know when you're getting towards the end. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, when all of the punch messed up is being done and the floors have been laid. So, uh, even though you don't know the hour and the day, right. you can kind of get a sense yeah. that the house is probably close to being finished. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's a good point. I wondered though also if it's, you know, they put on this huge feast. So is the dad really, the father of the groom, taking that year to save up the money to put on the huge feast? Yeah. And it's like, okay, I finally have enough. Today's the day. You yeah, know, you can do it. Part of it, but I think it's really interesting, for whatever reason, that it's totally the father's decision. Yeah. The father tells the son, okay, son, go get your bride. Yeah, sure. It is interesting. Um, so, he, just to kind of re recap, and we know this stuff, the three young men refused to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And something I went through this past week, and, and actually I'm still a little bit going through it, about a class in this sense, it was not a pleasant situation. Um, and I won't go into detail, but it was a situation that I did not cause, but I exacerbated. You ever done that? You made it worse? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and I felt actually terrible about it. So there was a little bit of fallout from it. And, and I still look at that. And I said to my wife the other day, I said, you know, I've been a Christian since I've been 13. I'm 66, and I'm still making dumb, stupid, stupid decisions. I don't get it. But what is interesting, and that's not excusing what, what happened. What is interesting is that I leaned so heavily on God this past week that I got some really new, new insight for me in how this whole thing works um, as far as being a Christian. <laughs> kind of amazing. But anyway, we'll, we'll get into just a little bit of that tonight because it's part of this. But the three young men refused to worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar had said. And ultimately, here's what they did. Long before Jesus talked about the narrow path, narrow gate, and the wide gate, leading to the wide path, which leads to eternal destruction, and the narrow path, leading to eternal life. Long before he ever talked about that, these men actually lived it. They chose the narrow way, which pushed them, or drew them, toward humility, mm -hmm. versus going toward self-exaltation. So, as I was thinking about this this week, and you can ask my wife, I have, I've had a few sleepless nights over uh, I wake up at 2.30 and I have nothing else to do, so I just start praying and thinking and reciting scripture. And, and it is amazing to me how simple 
this whole thing is. It's simple to understand and difficult to put into practice. Every decision we make either moves us more toward becoming more humble because yeah. we're reaching out for that. And more dependent on God then. Right? Or we're moving toward self-exaltation. So last week, this is what I was doing. I was exalting myself. I was allowing self to become primary. You know, king of the castle. And there's so much that we know that Jesus said, entering to the narrow gate. Broad is the gate that leads to the destruction. Why does it lead to destruction? Because this is what constantly happens to people who go down the path to destruction, the wide path. They're constantly exalting self. And Jesus is telling us now, you know, you got to do this. And I'm sure you would agree with me that choosing the humble can be pretty painful sometimes. It really can. I mean, there's no getting around that. So imagine what these men did. They deliberately chose this way. And there's another reason they did this, which we'll also mention. But imagine they knew that if they chose that way to reject worshiping the image, they were probably going to pay a very high price for it, their lives. But, as far as they were concerned, they didn't have an option. This was not an option for them. This was the only option. So they took it. And they took it willingly and apparently gladly. So their refusal resulted in the execution of the king's command, which is chapter 3, 9, 19 through 23. And uh, we know what happened then. Verse 19, I'll just read a little bit. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed. <laughs> I remember growing up and uh, when my father, when I did something stupid, I knew it instantly because my father's expression would change. His posture would change. He would bend over toward me. He would get down and he would have this look on his face that told me I had totally messed up. Told me I had messed up. So we can imagine Nebuchadnezzar probably did something very similar to this. Or worse. So then the king demanded the furnace to be heated to seven times hotter than normal. And most commentators believe that's not an exact thing. How do you heat a furnace seven times hotter? It's more or less a figure of speech, which meant make it as hot as possible. Make it as hot as possible. All right, so here's the text. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full, full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So I'm sure he went from being polite and reasonable to all of a sudden being filled with hatred and extremely angry. Remember, this is a guy that answered to no one yeah. on earth. What he said became law. So... He was afraid of no one. Everybody was afraid of him. And he commanded certain men, mighty men of valor, we've heard that on how many times in scripture, David had his mighty men of valor, who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, 
and their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, they probably poured so much fuel onto that fire. And because of the shape of the oven, which was, I'll get to that in a minute, couldn't really find pictures of it, but it was shaped kind of like an upside-down beehive with a chimney at the top, and there were probably windows or doors in the side that could be open. Um, but all of that fuel and burning wood or coal, whatever they used, would just, I mean, imagine, it's all coming out here out of this smaller chimney while it's burning in a much, much larger area. So we used to have a chimney in California, which is a very miniature version of that. I don't know if you've seen it. They're made of clay or pottery. <laughs> we had it, and, and I put in a couple of pieces of wood, and I neglected I think I put in pine. I didn't really know what I was doing. There. I think it was one of those, you light it, and it just burns. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in the box it says, don't use this kind of thing. So that's what I got. <laughs> don't use the 24, don't use a Duraflame. That's oh, Duraflame. Okay, I'll go grab one of those. So I put that in, and we're sitting there enjoying the fire. And all of a sudden, because of the shape of this thing, the, the, it really started roaring. And out of the top of it was like a jet engine exhaust. <laughs> and so we're like, like this. And so we pulled our chairs back, and then all of a sudden the thing started cracking. It was fine. It didn't fall apart, but that's kind of, I think, in my head, what went, went on with something like this. So. The fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And I'm, I'm going to assume in my mind that the fire was so roaring that even if they had been screaming, they might not have been heard. I don't know. But we've probably all been around fires, bonfires, whatever, that they're just loud because of the roar of the flames. So Nebuchadnezzar's anger prompted him to demand that it be heated more than it was normally. And this is an interesting thing, and I think it goes back to Genesis 12, 3, where that, blessed are those who bless you, Abraham, cursed are those who curse you. Well, to me, it kind of ties in because these men who threw them in died, which proves God's promises to Abraham, which also proves that they died, but the three young men did not. So who is in charge of that? God was. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar basically boasted, what God can save you? What, what is your God going to do to be able to save you from my terms of execution? We can also see this with Haman in Esther 7.10. That's a fascinating book. If you haven't read it in a while, you may want to. It's just absolutely fascinating to me. So Haman was doing everything he could to go after who? The Jews. I'm sorry? The Jews. Yes. Specifically, who did he hate the most? Mordecai. Oh. Uh, Mordecai. Mordecai. And yes, then he expanded it to all Jews. Which is kind of what's happening today. I saw this... Uh, a uh, pro-Palestinian person put on their Twitter X account a poster of Hitler. And underneath it, it said, now you understand why he did what he did. That's the way people think today. That's what people think today. 
So those who attack God's people pay the consequences. Whether it happens in this life or the next, they will be paying for their, whatever it is, they, their hatred. So the furnace may have been shaped like an inverted beehive, as I mentioned, and it was probably a pretty big one because they made a ton of bricks and pottery in those days. And because of the windows and or the doors, this is allowed by Nebuchadnezzar, it allowed him to see what was going on inside. He liked to marvel. I mean, imagine this. You toss these guys in. The guys who tossed them in are now dead. But there are the three guys in the fire. They didn't die. They didn't even show signs of soot, burning, nothing. Nothing. They weren't affected by the flames or the heat. They didn't know it would end that way, though. They said, that's one option. God has that. Or if we die, we still are victorious over you. So either way, it was a win-win for them. There are plenty of videos and pictures of the way Hamas treated innocent Israelis, tying them together and then burning them. Those are the pictures and videos, though, that people say, oh, that's fake. That's not, yeah. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the midst of the fire? And they were bound. They answered the king, true, O king. I wonder how much you paid them. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, this is fascinating. Their clothes weren't burned. Their hair wasn't singed. Their skin didn't melt. Their eyes didn't melt out of their head. <coughs> Nothing. Yet, the ropes were totally burned to a crisp. Gone. Isn't that fascinating? you got to love God. You know, he, he's into the details. So, they were not only saved from the actual flames, heat, and soot, but also from carbon monoxide poisoning, asphyxiation. I'm not how would a human being breathe in, in the midst of, you don't, you don't. Your, your lungs are totally fried. That's the amazement of yeah. the gods. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah, I, it's just astounding. So, they weren't Inside or out, they weren't affected negatively by anything that the fire put out. They were able to breathe as normal inside this fiery furnace, made seven times hot. So as Nebuchadnezzar watched, he was amazed to see a fourth person in the furnace with what, with the three, and someone he called the Son of God, or a Son of God, or what he meant was superhuman individual, or maybe an angel. So... Because he said he's son of God, it does not mean that we should take it to mean that he knew it was God's son. It was to him some tremendously powerful otherworldly being that was in the fire with the three men to protect him. So the fourth individual is either an angel, angel of the Lord, or a pre-incarnate Christ. As you can imagine, commentators are divided on this. I don't know what it is. Um, but it, he did not deliver them from the fire, did he? Mm. He delivered, he kept them safe within it. So the reality is, you know, when we go through life, God isn't going to keep, quote unquote, bad things from happening to us. 
but he will protect us in the midst of those things. Nebuchadnezzar then called the three men to come out, and they obeyed. When I see them, pardon me? No. When I see them in heaven, I'm going to ask, do you remember what it felt like? Was it cool? I mean, what did it feel like? So, again, he uses the phrase here, servants of the most high God. And where is that? 26? Ah, yeah, 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. He uses the, the phrase. In this particular title, servants of the Most High God, it appears 13 times in Daniel more than any other book in the Bible except the Psalms. Hmm. Nebuchadnezzar's use of the title Most High God, by the way, you've got to look at it from his perspective. He was a polytheist. He believed in many gods. He didn't want to offend other gods. But as far as he was concerned now, is that the Most High God means a universal authority that does not necessarily detail God's personal qualities. So he was basically saying, you ever heard people do this? Man, if you could just send good thoughts my way or pray to your God or you know, whatever you conceive him or her to be, that's what we get a lot from the world. And this is kind of what that His eyes were starting to open. He all of a sudden began to realize there is a more powerful God than Nebo, my favorite God to worship. It must be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, God most high. So what he was really saying is, their God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their God is the highest God I'm aware of. There could be others, but he's the highest I'm aware of. So he's a pagan, and he's just saying, this, this God is, this God's a pretty powerful God. He was admitting the three men's God had more power than all other gods, including his own. Something he haughtily said, what God is going to save you? for my execution command. So this God was able to deliver the men as they said he could. They put their faith in God. They said, King, basically, you throw us in the fire, that's fine. God can save us if he wants to out of the flames. He may not. We may die. But we're still safe from you. And notice that the ropes of the battle, I mentioned that they were all burned in the fire they were probably non-existent. And one commentator says the rope symbolized Nebuchadnezzar's power over them and God canceled that power. That's one of the reasons I think, or at least the commentator thinks that that's why they burned the uh, ropes. God was clearly stating, compared to him, Nebuchadnezzar had no power over those three men because mm -hmm. their faith was in God. Their destiny was in God's hands, not Nebuchadnezzar's. So the lesson here for us, honestly, was the same thing. And I guess that hit home to me last week. God exercises power over our lives. He lets things come into our lives that will sand off the rough edges, recreate the image of his son in greater clarity in us. That, that's the whole purpose of why God does those things. 
We know that. When we, you ought to turn the volume up on that. I don't know how. When we trust Him, He will act for His own good pleasure and glory. But how easy is it for us to do this? Really, honestly. Last week, when I made my faux pas, I wasn't trusting Him. I was trusting me. I was thinking, Fred, you got this. You can handle this. So God sit back and say, yeah, Fred, go ahead. <laughs> and now, I had to deal with the fallout from that, and I still have a little ways to go on that. But again, what God has taught me because of that situation in not leaning on Him has been a tremendously good set of lessons because I'm understanding things much more clearly than I had before. So it's good to point out that these three men were able to face the fiery furnace. This is another reason they were able to fire, face the fiery furnace because their fear, you, you, you can't go too far in the Bible where it doesn't talk about the fear of the Lord. And, and if I were to ask you what you meant, I won't, but if I were to ask you what the fear of the Lord meant to you, you would probably say deep awe, respect, reverence. But we're not supposed to fear God. We have no reason to fear God. So if we add this little word here, their fear of offending God or grieving God was so strong that they found themselves in a position where they had no actual, actual option at all except to refuse to worship. Because they were more concerned about actions that would offend God than, you know, not having any kind of fear at all. Psalm 147, 10-11 say, says this, He does not delight I find, when I first read this a few months ago, I thought, wow, that's really weird. He does not go light in the strength of the horse. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I delight in the strength of the horse. On my bus ride, I see horses in the pasture all the time. Sometimes they'll be galloping. Sometimes they'll just be walking. You can see their muscles ripple. And it's like, I just, I love to look I mean, I keep my eye on the road, too, don't get me wrong, but I'll glance over and I'll just see these horses and I'll go, wow. Wow, they're so majestic. And then when they're galloping, their mane is just... But God does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. And so as I was reading this, I thought, okay, what does that mean? Then let's watch as the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him or fear offending Him in those who hope in His mercy. Why is that? The fear of the Lord, I believe, is the key to living a godly life, the fear of offending the Lord. And if you look through the Old Testament, why did Daniel do what he did? Why did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do what he did? Why did David, for the most part, do what he did, except when you get to 2 Samuel 11, where he, you know, commits adultery with Bathsheba, and to cover his sin, he has her husband Uriah killed. 
why did Moses live the way he did? Every time he faced a situation, what was the first thing he did often? He would prostrate himself on the ground and make his case before the Lord. He was, Lord, they're getting ready to stone me. What do I do? He didn't, he, he feared offending the Lord. And, and I think, if I may, I think the reason God, well, let me ask you, why do you think God is not impressed with the strength of the horse? Why? He, he takes no delight in it. Because uh, it's, it's a reflection of him. Yeah, in, yeah, in what way? Uh, in his strength. He created the horse. There you go, yeah. I mean, down to the molecular, the DNA level. I yeah. mean, yeah, and if you look at the horse. something impressive. That's impressive. Oh, it is. Yeah. Not the horse, but the guy that made the horse. Exactly. Yeah, so what happened here? God made the horse, and the horse does exactly what God created it to do. Our legs do exactly what God created them to do. So why would God be impressed with his own creation? He might call it good, and he did. This is very good. But he's not going to be impressed with it as if he surprised himself. But what's fascinating is he seems to be... He actually takes pleasure. He takes pleasure in those who fear, and I'm going to put that word, offending him. Are you sure that's all there is to it? What do you mean? I think there's more to the fear of the Lord. Okay. Other than just merely being afraid of offending God, God's going to be mad at me. Uh, no, 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 no. Let me ask you this. Let's say you have a couple that has been happily married for I don't know how many years. They've never cheated on each other. Why? Because they never had the chance? Or because they love one another so much that they would never do something like that that would grieve or harm the spouse? Would you say that that's okay? Would, would that be, you understand what I'm saying? So we're not, when we say fear the Lord, Jesus talks about it. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That's, that's his definition of what fear of the Lord is, not grieving the Holy Spirit. And when we actively work to not grieve the Holy Spirit, we're basically at a point in our lives where we fear doing something or saying something that's going to offend him. Not because he's going to throw a lightning bolt at us, but because we love him that much. And we know he loves us infinitely more. So, well, that's what I was going to get to. Yeah. Uh, it's an appreciation for who God is. Exactly. Yes. Who God is. Yes. Exactly. Yes. He is our benefactor that everything to include our next breath comes yep. from Him. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Amen. And so, uh, recognizing yeah. that. What do you recognize? No. And, and the problem is with that word fear, we usually think, yeah. I think, Fear. Yeah, well, what I think when I was a kid, I was afraid of my father. Because he was a strict disciplinarian. But you loved your father, too. Pardon? You loved your I father. Did. Too. I did. I did. I did. <laughs> no, I did. It absolutely. He took me home all the time. But the thing is, 
The thing is, I did fear him. And at that point, I never equated fear with him loving me because when I would see him get angry with me, then I would think he doesn't love me or I've done something so horribly wrong, now I'm going to feel his wrath. God isn't like that. And that's not the point of this. But unfortunately, that's how that can confuse us, which is why it's probably good for us to understand. I've been married to her for 38 years. And I don't. Why would I ever, ever consider doing something that would emotionally hurt her? Why would I do that? Because I love and respect her too much. She with me. So, but yet you, you know, we all know couples probably who don't seem to care about the other spouse that much. We met a guy today, he was a nice guy. Um, we went to get some pumpkins and he, I was talking to him, I said, I wanted to find out more about him. And he goes, well, he goes, yeah, I live here by myself now. My wife, after 25 years, decided she didn't love me, so she left. I said, Oh, I'm really sorry about that. No worries. And, uh, you know, and he goes, quite frankly, he goes, the 10 years before she left, I got the impression she didn't love me that much. And 10 years before that, she left once, and I told her if she ever did it again, that's going to be it. So I'm thinking, you know, some people, I guess, think more of themselves than grieving the person that they've committed themselves to. So that's just one example, I guess. Um, when I was also, this is kind of a, maybe a simple, too simple, but when I was growing up with dogs, they did something wrong, you, you hit them. Whether it was with a rolled up newspaper, or you know, they poop someplace, you push their nose toward it, not in it, but toward it, and then you say, no, don't do that. I don't do that anymore. I haven't done that in a long time. I've learned that if you treat a dog respectfully, teach them, and, and be totally consistent with them and show them lots of love, they become so loyal to you that they can't not be loyal. And imagine if all of a sudden you acted out of what they're used to and you started doing something stupid. It would confuse the dog. See, I don't want to do that. I have two rescues right now, and the, the second one we got, Apparently he has an interesting story. There's things that he's afraid of that I don't understand. <laughs> I just, I don't Wooden get Wooden floors. <laughs> Pardon me? Wooden floors. <laughs> like we went to the mercantile. Yeah. yeah. We went <laughs> to the mercantile in Concord and he was like this on the floor. It was a weird floor to him. Um, he can't go up and down stairs. I mean, it has taken him a long time to get there. Um, so the first five months of his life must have been really not good. And yet, I know he loves me. Sylvia told me the other day, she goes, oh, you're his person. Yeah. You know, and Lace you can't... And you can't tell a dog, I'm going to be the most important person in your life. They just learn it or they don't. They, that's what they do. So, the Lord takes pleasure, pleasure in those who... in those who don't, who are desperate not to grieve him. And those who hope in his mercy. And frankly, I think that's what Daniel did, whether he could have verbalized it like that, that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. 
They hoped in his mercy. And when we say hope, again, we're not talking about, oh, I hope I go to heaven. No, no, no. It's, it's a solid hope. It's an understanding of what's going to happen in the future. All right. So, really, it talks about the fear of the Lord, or the fear of offending him, or the desire, the strong desire not to grieve God. And that's, that's the epitome of what made Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make their decision. To them, it was a no-brainer. Oh, no, I'm not even going to think about doing that because I'll be telling God that Nebuchadnezzar's image is more important than God. I, I can't even go there. What, whatever happens to me, fine. So it is the fear of offending and living in a way that refuses to grieve, sadden, or anger God. I didn't do that last week. I did not do that. One thing I love about Mark, when he'll sit there and give you personal recollections from his own personal examples, he does the same thing. And, and I appreciate that because it helps us identify, it helps him identify with us and we with him because we look at that and we go, we're all just human. Yeah. We all make mistakes, but God still carries through and still loves us. Even with the mistake I made last week, there was some definite soul-searching on my part. And not once, not once did I get a sense that God was really ticked off with me and had turned his back on me. That, that was, I knew that consequences might remain. And God can do whatever he wants to with those consequences. And he'll lead me through, I'm sure. So it's the development and growth of this fear that brings about holy living naturally. And as I said at the very beginning, the narrow gate toward humility, the wide gate toward eternal destruction. Well, last week, with my stupidity, I exalted self. I did not act as if I was on that path that leads to eternal life. By increasing humility, I did the exact opposite. That doesn't mean I'm no longer on that path. It just means I stopped for a minute. And I did something stupid. So, as we become more adept at this, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and by the way, that didn't just happen overnight with them, it was a lifetime, getting to that point where they were so confident in God, so willing to say, no, we can't do that, we'll lay down our lives rather than do that. They had done that naturally, and it provided strength, discernment, wisdom, and power to obey Him in all. And honestly, that's where I'm at. But I also understand that it's going to take time to develop as well. And anything else is simply religiosity or Phariseeism or self-effort. This should be oh, the Jesus cut off. It's yeah. legalism. And that's what the Pharisees did. They were legalists. They exalted self and they excused themselves at every turn. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think we're almost done here. Along with Daniel, knew what it was to fear offending the Lord. They were so afraid, not because of God's wrath, but because they loved God so much and they knew that He loved them. They didn't want to ruin that. They didn't want to ruin it by doing something stupid or exalting self. And because they feared offending Him, because they were 
disheartened at the thought of greeting and being resolute in what they knew. And I also believe, had I taken a few minutes last week and recommitted that and said, Lord, what do I do here? I believe he would have given me the right thing to say or do. But I didn't bother with that. These men, on the other hand, did what they were supposed to do. They knew what was the correct way to live before him, and they embraced it. And that, I think, is what makes that narrow path so difficult, because it really is difficult, and it can be painful at times, trying to deny something, trying to become more humble, embrace humility, and reject self-exaltation. So, again, in every situation we face, we're never going to do it perfectly in this world, and I have to give myself a break there too, knowing that. But in every situation we face, we have a choice. Well, do I push toward humility? Do I try to embrace humility in this situation? Or am I going to exalt myself? We cannot live rightly without a healthy fear of offending the Lord. Healthy desire to not grieve God. And I really think that that's the root of Christianity. I could be totally wrong, but it seems to me it fits in there perfectly. All right. Let me just go over this real briefly. Nebuchadnezzar is symbolic of the entire period of the times of the Gentiles. And we see through them kind of a microcosm of the entire seven weeks stretched out. The deliverance of the three men is indicative of Israel's deliverance through fire and trials. They're going to get, they're going to get through what they're going through right now. There's probably going to be a lot more deaths uh, on both sides, but we always need to remember that God never loses sight of His remnant. At the end of the times of the Gentiles, during the tribulation, Israel will be tried by severe fire. That's the whole purpose of the tribulation. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. For one thing, Jacob is Israel. For all Jews living then, God would put his final brother together, fulfilling his words in Romans chapters 9 through 11. All Israel will be saved, Romans 11, 26. And that does not mean the entire nation will be saved, which means God will pull that final remnant of individual Jews together, and they will become the final remnant representing Israel, and they will go in the millennial kingdom and enjoy the full promises that were originally given to Abraham. That's what I think the Bible says. I know others disagree with me, and that's okay. Um, I like what Mark said last week about what the first, there's four orders of beliefs in different things. Some of them are, the first order is no negotiation. Jesus is God. He is God the Son. There is a the Trinity and other things. That's, there's no negotiation. And there's other things that are, I guess we could say, less important. Um, and maybe this is one of those things. And that's okay. All right, so God literally not only rebuked Nebuchadnezzar, but the Chaldeans themselves by saving the three young men. He made his statement. God said, no, 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 no. This, I am much more powerful. Mm-hmm. For God to do what he did, was nothing. Nothing. Yeah. He probably just barely moved his finger. Nothing. The Chaldeans worshipped 
the fire as a sort of image. This is why it was a rebuke to Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans. They worshipped fire as a sort of image of the sun, so that in restraining the fire now, God put contempt not only upon their king, Nebuchadnezzar, but upon their god, Nebo, too. And that's a quote from Dr. Thomas Constable. So it's really interesting when you get into these ancient antiquitous uh, empires and some of the, the beliefs that they held. So God really rebuked them because he said, I control the fire. Uh, maybe we should stop. I thought it was almost done. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, we can stop here. Let's.